Well, I especially congratulate you this morning on coming to a, an amen study when you know we're going to be talking about giving. Uh, whenever we announce that we're going to be talking about giving in our church, there's a little bit lower crowd that Sunday. And uh, it reminds me of the story I may have told you about before, but there was a riot in, in a town and the policeman tried to s- separate everybody and get them to go home and he couldn't do it. And the pastor walked up and said, let me help out. So the pastor gets out there and before you know it, the whole crowd's dispersed. The policeman said, how in the world did you do that? And he said, just preached one of my sermons on stewardship and everybody scattered. That's the way it works when we talk about stewardship so often. The reason is that one of uh, our biggest sins is greed. There's no doubt about it. It's one of the most powerful idols in the American culture. And it's so powerful that we consider it taboo even to talk about it. So we all kind of uh, come up with excuses why the preacher should never talk about giving. Uh, because he's obviously just trying to manipulate people or something like that. It's a built-in resistance, an, an idol, uh, and the demons have a way of doing this. They get us to worship idols and they, they inoculate us so that nothing can get through the brain or the soul to have us deal with that idol. And so it's almost self-inoculating, the idol of greed. And we don't like to talk about it, but the Bible does. And here the Apostle Paul talks about it. Let me remind you of the background. He's been in Ephesus. He had heard about the, some of the problems in uh, Corinth, and he wrote uh, his third letter to them. That was a letter after 1 Corinthians. He wrote another letter that's referred to here in, in 2 Corinthians, which is actually 4 Corinthians. And in that letter, it was a very piercing letter. It was a very strong letter. Uh, and... He called them to repentance. He wasn't sure whether he had spoken too strongly to them so that they might even totally discount the Christian religion after the way he spoke to them. He was worried. So he leaves Ephesus, goes to Troas. uh, Titus is supposed to meet him there and tell him about how his letter was received. And uh, Titus doesn't show up. So Paul goes on across, probably as they agreed, across the Aegean and meets him in Macedonia. And there... Titus reports to him that the majority of the church has repented. Now in the first part of of 2 Corinthians, chapters 1 through 7, we've been dealing with that first big section where Paul is explaining himself as an apostle and how his ministry is different from the ministry of the super apostles that so many people have been following. It's a new covenant ministry. It's a ministry of weakness to show God's strength. It's a ministry with hope for everlasting life. All those things we've been studying. It's a ministry that actually leads to full repentance, that leads to real holiness and practical life. Paul has explained all that in the first seven chapters. Now, there are two other issues yet remaining in Corinth that Paul wants to address. The the, uh, second issue we're going to get to in chapter 10 when he speaks to the minority that is still holding out. Okay, so... Churches move like a turtle, very slowly. And when they move, they, they move with simple, they, they move with large minorities, and then they move with simple majorities, and then eventually, uh, if God be pleased, you get a tipping point and the whole church can be revived. Well, this church had moved with a simple majority, it appears, but they had a large minority who had not yet uh, seen the light. And Paul was concerned about them spiritually. So in chapters 10 through 12, we're going to, or 13, we're going to see his uh, strong ministry to the remaining minority in, Second Corinth, in, in Corinth. Uh, 
In chapters 8 and 9, he takes up another issue. And if you'll look at the background notes I have here, if you'll go back in, in your mind to the council at Jerusalem, you remember that Paul in Acts 15, and he reports it out in Galatians 2, was arguing with the council in Jerusalem, the first general assembly of the church, that God was taking the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. They were legitimate converts and deserved a place in the household of God. And a huge, the whole first general assembly was based on that topic. And you know from the results of that, uh, we studied it some years ago in Acts, right here in Amen Bible Study, that they did agree that the Gentiles were legitimate converts, and they simply sent out a, an instruction that they not eat blood offered to idols and so on, they not worship idols, that they get certain things straight, no problem. And that announcement really brought peace to the whole church in Asia at the time. So it was a successful assembly. But in that assembly, Paul reports in Galatians chapter 2, they also said, Paul, we believe that when the Gentiles come to Christ, they in their prosperity should help out the poor Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem. And Paul said, wonderful, that's exactly what we want to do. Ever since that time, Paul has consistently collected uh, monies from the Gentile converts uh, as a, a way of supporting uh, the poor in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, you'll remember that when Barnabas went up to check out the church in Antioch, even before the Council of Jerusalem, to validate the conversion of Gentiles in Antioch. What was the last thing you read about in Acts chapter 11? Barnabas takes a collection for those who are going to be facing the famine in Jerusalem. It was the first recorded international charitable gift in the history of humankind. And ever since then, Christians have been involved in charity internationally. Not just outside our home into the community, but we've been involved in international relief work. It began right there in Antioch. It was confirmed years later in the Council of Jerusalem that the prosperous Christians would give for the poor Christians. So Paul spent a lot of his life doing this. Now, Paul undoubtedly had a second interest. You can see it in Romans. You can see it here in our text we're going to read in just a moment. Paul was... It seems as though Paul made a deal with the party of James, who were the strong law people in the Christian church. And out of James's ministry, often it appeared, there were some Judaizing believers who uh, went in the Asian and European churches and confused them. Paul, it seems, made a deal. James, you keep your guys in Jerusalem and have them not trouble my Gentile churches. And we'll be sure and bring the offering from the Gentile churches and help the poor folks in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know that for sure. That's speculative. But if, you, if you're reading between the lines, the book of Acts and the Pauline epistles, it seems as though that appears to be what was going on. And so Paul had a right to be upset with his Jerusalem brothers when they're Judaizers floating around in Asia and Europe. He wanted to know, did they, were they under James or not? If they were not under James, they should be. And if they were under James, they shouldn't be in Asia and Europe because they had made a deal. So Paul's collection has multiple motives behind it. He's collecting from the Gentile churches because they are more prosperous, generally, generally speaking, than the poor Jews in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But secondly, he wants to continue to offer validation 
to the Jerusalem bishops, if you will, Bishop James and some others there who were the big cheeses, he wants to continue to validate the Gentile mission by showing how generous they are toward their Jewish Christian brethren. That's what's going on here. And what you'll notice, if you look back at 1 Corinthians 16, in Paul's, in 1 Corinthians, that would be Paul's second letter to them, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 16, if you remember our study there a few weeks ago, to prepare the offering for him when he comes. And he says, Let's, you, you all collect it on the first day of the week, on every Lord's Day, you collect your offering and have it ready when, I'm, when I come. Because Paul was saying, don't make me beg for this offering. You get it ready for me so that when I come, I'll carry it back to Jerusalem. Now what had happened in the intervening months was that this offering had slacked off. And that's my third point there. And you pick that up in chapter 8. We're going to see that in our text. And Paul, therefore, teaches on the necessity for generosity. So they had slacked off. And Paul's answer is, let's go back and look at the theology of giving. Now, when I look at the American culture, I see a culture that's slacked off. We make twice as much in real income today as we made in 1960. And we're giving one-third less on a percentage basis. Did you get that? We're making twice as much in real money as we were in 1960, and we're giving one-third less on a percentage basis. We've slacked off. What do we need? We need to fight the demon and the idol of, of uh, greed, and we need to look at what the Word of God says about generosity. That's the answer. It's teaching the Word of God. So we're in the right place this morning. Congratulations to you. Now let's look at chapter 8 then. Let's read the whole chapter that Paul's taking up this new topic, this second big topic that he has to cover with them, because he's saying to them, basically, I understand from Titus that you all slacked off on this. And once again, he's reminding them, I want you to get this collection ready so that when I come, I can take it with me and be off on my way. So there's no argument. There's no pleading. There's no, there's, no, um, there's no sense of undue urgency. Let's get it done now. So verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." But as you excel in everything, in speech, in, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich." And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. 
For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been uh, appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers... They are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Okay, first of all, let's notice that our generosity must be vigorously cultivated. Our generosity must be vigorously cultivated. Generosity is not innate to the human flesh. Selfishness is innate to the human flesh, so we must carefully cultivate it all our lives, young and old alike. Now notice first of all in verses 1 through 6 that we cultivate this by imitating the best Christian givers. We imitate the best Christian givers. What does Paul do in his argument here? He says, well, let me tell you about these Macedonians. (laughs) Great tactic. Now, you have to be careful because it's kind of like as a parent saying, I sure wish you were like your older brother. You know, that's not good. That's not good, playing favorites with the children. But Paul is careful enough here. He's making, he says to them over and over again, do you know how much I love you? Do you, do you know how special you are to me? And, of course, kids become special to us because we invest ourselves in them. There's a sense in which, isn't it true, uh, fathers, that, the kids that give you the most trouble sometimes, you, you end up having more affection for them in a certain way. You've invested so much in them. Well, Corinth was like that for Paul. They, they should have no doubt that Paul loved them and that they were special to him. But he was, he, he was using the Macedonians to kind of get under their skin a little bit. He said, let me tell you about these Macedonians. Now, those of you who are members of Second Presbyterian, you know I do this too. Uh, there aren't too many churches that uh, give more on a per capita basis or give more on a, uh, a, more, a greater percentage of their people giving to world missions than our church, quite frankly. I have to look pretty hard to find them. But when I do, I always come home and report about it. Let me tell you about these people over in this place. You know, as soon as I find out somebody who's giving more per capita, or I find a church, who, a greater percentage of which of their membership are giving, I tell our church all about them. And I'm not saying I wish you could be like them, but I'm saying, you know what, that can be done. I've seen it. We need to get moving. And frankly, on world missions, 
Uh, we have a pretty hefty percentage of people who in our church who give to world missions, but I know a church that has a greater percentage. I know two churches that has a, have a greater percentage. You might be hearing about it soon. I just want to remind us that there are other people uh, who are vigorous, and Paul was doing this. He was saying, let me tell you about these great Macedonians. And I'm sure they were getting a little bit, you know, because Achaia, you know, is down there near, just, just uh, west of Athens. Uh, that's Achaia, sort of the uh, Peloponnesian uh, island there. And then Macedonia was like what we would call northern Greece. So these people knew each other. They'd probably fought wars against each other recently. Uh, so they were, uh, they were aware of the uh, tension there. And Paul says, I want you to know about them. And he uses the word grace here uh, because he says, first of all, about them, Christian giving is a grace from God. Now, the word grace is found 18 times in this letter. It's found 10 times in these two chapters. But in verses 1 through 9, you'll find it five times. So of the 18 times in 2 Corinthians... You get five occasions of the word grace, sometimes not translated grace, but it's in verses 1 through 9. So Paul says, giving is a gift itself. You say, really? <laughs> you know, in the, in the list of spiritual gifts, uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or 1 Peter 4 or Ephesians 4, you've got all these gifts and you may be saying, Lord, I'd like to have the gift of prophecy. Lord, give me the gift of interpretation. Lord, give me tongues. How many people have prayed, Lord, give me the gift of generosity? Uh, you know, you don't get that very often, unfortunately. But the apostle here is teaching about generosity. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And we should pray for it. Because it is a gift. Paul says later in here, this is better for you. This is to your benefit. Jesus said it. Paul quoted him. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Your mama and your grandmama taught you that when you're a little boy. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And you say, well, I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. Yeah, you will believe it and you will see it. Because it is more blessed to, to give than to receive. And the Lord knows it and He loves you. He wants to give us the gift of generosity. And we have to be asking for it, wanting it, and then use it. Paul says, giving is a gift. And these Macedonians, they picked up on it. In Romans 12, verse 8, you'll have it there in the list of gifts there in the Romans section, uh, a gift of God. Now secondly, he says, Christian giving is an overflow of joy. He says, about the, he says about the Macedonians, look, let me tell you two things about them. Number one, they faced intense persecution. More persecution than you face, frankly. They faced intense afflictions. And let me tell you something else about them. Unlike yourself in this prosperous city of Corinth, and all of you pretty much have a job, and some of you are wealthy, in Macedonia, it's a smaller town, more rural. Those folks are really poor. And let me tell you, out of their great affliction and out of their poverty, they had a joy that was overwhelming them. And out of their joy, they gave as an overflow of their love and thanksgiving to God. Wow. So what we find with the idol of greed, that as you get more out of that idol, as you serve that idol and you become materially better off, you actually become less generous. Your heart actually becomes harder. 
So the wealthy on a percentage basis are not giving as much as the poor. That would be true today in many circles. And here Paul just simply says, look, you can learn from the poor. I know as I travel in different parts of the world, and largely it is with poor people because most of our mission is among poor folks in different, uh, different countries of the world. And when I go there, it's, uh, and many of you have had this experience, it's embarrassing, isn't it? Because they put out their best food, they put out their, their best wares, they go to great lengths uh, to serve you and to treat you hospitably. And you realize if we did the same thing, we'd be having a, a wedding reception every weekend for people. I mean, the, the portion of their income that they spend on you when you go see them is truly humbling, humiliating, embarrassing. And it's convicting because we realize how, how little we do this for our neighbor here. Paul is saying that Christian giving is an overflow of joy. Notice thirdly, in verse 3, he shows us how it is sacrificial. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And you can't help but be reminded here of the widow with her two mites and how Jesus saw the Pharisees putting in their large amounts and uh, they wanted everybody to know it. And this woman, poor woman, knowing how insignificant she was and yet loving the Lord, she comes up and just simply offers all she has, two little pennies, if you will. And the Lord said she gave more than everybody else. And then he taught us, don't boast about your giving. It's a grace of God by which you give. The only reason you're giving is because God gave you the gift of giving. How can you boast about that? If you boast about your giving, it must only be in the sense of how God overcame such a stingy, mean-spirited person like myself to make me generous. Now you can boast about that. But you can't boast about your own character because you didn't have the gift of giving in the first place. God gave it to you. And this woman had the gift of giving, and it was very, very sacrificial. You know, when I teach on Christian finances, which is not that often, but when I do, I think in terms of three categories. Number one, the Proverbs have a lot to say, and Jesus has a lot to say, about just simply managing your finances well. There's certain things you need to do. You need to pay your bills on time. And young men, let me say particularly, you're laying the foundation for decades of a reputation and of a, of a financial practice of simply paying your bills on time. And sometimes you, you, don't, you don't eat a meal so that you can pay your bills on time. So the Proverbs teach us not to be indebted to other people. And secondly, Proverbs teach us to save. And some of you guys are not saving adequately. And, you know, I don't know what the number is. Is it 10%? Is it 20%? I don't know. Talk to somebody who knows better than I do. But there's a number in which you need to be creating margins in your expenses so that you don't spend everything that you make and you're actually creating some savings. And then, of course, secondly, after these basic principles of financial management, and there are many more of them, uh, we, we can talk about our generosity and how much we give. And, of course, from a biblical perspective, we tithe. We give 10% of our income, bring it into the storehouse, and then we try to give more than that. So there's the basic principles of generosity and how we do that on a regular basis. The first 10% goes into the storehouse. And then thirdly, uh, I like to teach about simply a cross being in your uh, life and in your finances. Where is the cross? And that cross is, is what brings us to sacrifice. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us. We want to give sacrificially. 
So some people say give until it hurts. I say give until it feel good, feels good. Because when you know that you're, you're loving your spouse, you know that you've sacrificed for that wonderful present that you're buying her for Mother's Day. You will get great pleasure out of seeing the smile on her face because you actually sacrificed to do something important for her or your own mother. Uh, In the same way with Christ, there's joy in sacrificing and giving to Him. So Christian giving is by its very nature sacrificial. And you see it here. He says, they even gave beyond their means. What does that mean? That means that they were surrendering some of the, what we would consider the basic necessities of life in order to care for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That's very, very impressive. Now notice he says in verse 4, fourthly, Christian giving is a privilege. You say, yeah, that's one of those privileges. I, yeah, I think I'll give that one up for Lent, you know. Uh, Christian giving is a privilege. Why is it a privilege? Well, real simply, you can't outgive the Lord. Do you think you're, you you're going to give Him something and there'll be no fruit from it? You think that you'll give Him something and then be sorry you gave it? <laughs> no. When you give to the Lord, you are investing in His kingdom. And His kingdom will never fail. And His kingdom is growing. His kingdom is going to take over the entire cosmos and you're going to be positioned as one of His rulers. So you're making an investment that is honestly in your own interest, in your true interest, not selfish, fleshly interest, your true self-interest. So uh, Christian giving is indeed a privilege. It's like one of your friends who finds a really great investment. I mean, one of these investments, I know there are very few of them, but every once in a while, you know, they come along. They're no-brainers. That if the whole business goes wrong, you can still sell it out and the, and the, and the assets will pay for your original investment. I mean, you just can't go wrong on it, you know? One of those kinds of investments. When one of your friend has one of those, and he expects to be making about, you know, 15 or 20% a year off of it, you're saying, give me a piece of that. Let me invest in that. And it costs you, you know, $50,000 to invest. And you consider yourself highly privileged because you just made investment that's going to pay off. That's what Paul is saying. The Macedonians got it. This is the best investment you can make. And when you get a piece of it, you're very, very happy and you know that you're privileged. Now, fifthly, notice in verses 5 and 6 that Paul is saying Christian giving is an offering to the Lord. So yes, you're giving an offering for the poor in Jerusalem your brothers and sisters who are having a hard time uh, finding food to eat. You're giving an offering to them. But Paul is saying here clearly that he, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Look in verse 5. They knew that their devotion was first to the Lord. So they understood the dynamic of Christian giving. It is an offering that pleases the Lord. Now, in Philippians chapter 4, remember, this is years later, Paul is in Rome in prison And he's writing to the Philippians, the Macedonians. And he says to them at that point, thank you for the resources that you sent over here by Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus walked 600 miles to bring the offering from Macedonia to Paul in prison. They heard he was in prison and they cared for their missionary by sending one of their deacons to walk 600 miles to take him supplies. Paul was deeply moved. It almost killed Epaphroditus. And Paul wanted to send him back so they would stop worrying about Epaphroditus. 
And he said to them, I thank you so much for your care, but I want you to know that even if you hadn't sent it, I've learned to be content regardless of my circumstances. So he didn't want to think that this missionary sending church, one of his dearest churches, that he was dependent upon them ultimately. He wanted them to know even in their generosity, he was dependent only upon the Lord. But then he said to them, the gift that you sent is a fragrant offering to the Lord. And he reminds them that in supporting him as their missionary and the apostle, that they were actually making a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. Do we understand this? The Proverbs say it. When you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord, and He will repay you. So when we're engaged in the ministry of the gospel and reaching the lost and reaching the poor, you're lending to the Lord. What kind of interest rates do you think He pays? So remember, this is where the joy comes from, is that ultimately you're exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in your giving. That's the reason that we want to be liberal in our giving. Now, uh, notice, uh, secondly, this first thing we've looked at is that as we cultivate our generosity vigorously, we imitate the best Christian givers. In this case, it was the Macedonians. Secondly, we then aspire to become excellent givers. B, we aspire to become excellent givers. Paul says, but as you excel in everything, you Corinthians, I know how you speak in tongues. I know how you're able to interpret. I know how you have this mysterious knowledge about all things. You excel in these things, in these supernatural demonstrative gifts. Hey, how about excelling in generosity? (laughs) Why don't you aspire to that like you do other things? How do we do this? Well, let me suggest four ways in which we can excel in our giving. First of all, we plan our giving. In 1 Corinthians 16, we saw how Paul explained to them they should plan their giving. We spoke at that time a few weeks ago about how useful it is for you to take a whole 12-month period and plan it out, your your major gifts, where are they going. Uh, Some gifts you don't know yet exactly what they are, but you've got a category for that. And you uh, plan your unplanned giving. Uh, You know, just, I don't know how much it is, but... You have an amount over here so that when those kids ask you to help support them on their summer missions trip, you've already got a category for that. And you don't know who's going to ask you if you're a second Presbyterian, but you're probably, I mean, I got, I've already got my 10 letters. Uh, so, and I know they're coming. You know, I've been warned. So I've got a category over here to help these kids and other things that are, that are unexpected. But the major portion of my giving is planned ahead of time. You know, for heaven's sakes, I've lived here for 19 years. I think I know the people that are involved in ministry, and I think I know what I need to do to be engaged as a a Christian in some of these ministries. So just plan them out and chart them out. And then when you make your gift, all you do is put the date next to the the gift that you made that's on your chart there that you planned out. It's, It's really not that difficult. Here's what it helps you do. That helps you be aggressive. Because before you make your money, why don't you go ahead and decide uh, what you're going to be doing with generosity. Why don't you go ahead and make the sacrifice a year ahead of time. You can actually get more pleasure out of it because I'm, I'm sacrificing. I've already sacrificed my $2,014 before I make them. So I, I enjoyed it last year and I'm enjoying it this year. And then we'll plan 2015. I'll get pleasure out of planning 2015 as well as executing 2015. So there's more pleasure in it and I'm more aggressive. Secondly, I learned how to say no. Because if I've maxed up 
and I've, re- I've figured out what's the maximum I can do, and I make my best giving plan, then if somebody calls me on the telephone, some organization I've never heard of, and asks me, hey, can you put this on your credit card? No, I'm sorry. Send me a letter, and I'll consider it for next year. Huh? Yeah, no, I plan a year ahead of time, so just send me a letter, and I'll plan on it for next year. I'll consider it. So then you consider all these requests in view of the other requests that you've got. That's what an intelligent giver does. If you want to make your best investments, then you make them by comparison, uh, com- comparing with other possibilities, which leads us to number two. We grow in our generosity, both quantitatively and qualitatively. You want to get better at this. Now, of course, those people who have millions and millions of dollars to give away, they've got to get really good at it. I mean, if they make mistakes, they're missing some major opportunities dollar-wise. But you want to be the best you can. Paul says, let's, let's excel in the grace of giving. Okay, let's excel. Let's get good at this. So, you know, if you only give, give away $1,000 a year, why don't you spend it in the best possible place? Now, look, for you guys who are younger, let me say, I, I remember what it's like to have a little house that I can barely afford and to have more children than I can feed. <laughs> and... No space or time much to do anything. In fact, I remember early on, I couldn't afford to take my vacations. I mean, the only place I could go was to spend time with my parents or Allison's parents. I mean, there was no way we could do anything on vacation money-wise. That was the situation actually for a number of years. So I I realize the situation you're in. So look, you do extremely well uh, with tithing and making the sacrifices that go with a tithe. And don't think poorly of yourself because of that. Just get started with tithing. Trust the Lord with that. Manage the rest of your 90% the best you can. Do the best you can. You may have to stack the children up in bunk beds. We've done that before, you know, in smaller bedrooms than you would have liked. But that's, you get pleasure out of that. You've sacrificed in order to give to the Lord uh, the tithe. You older guys, now come on. Uh, you've had more time to accumulate. You've had, a lot of you have, had, have your children up and out. And I know you still love to give them gifts, but come on now. We've got poor people and lost people in this world, and we need to mobilize some of your giving. I've had people say to me, you know, I've made all the money I need. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, so what are the implications of that? So now you're going to retire early? Go play some golf? Hey, look, that kind of thinking reflects that you don't understand why you were making money in the first place. You thought you were making money so that you just had enough for what you think you need? Certainly that is one purpose of working. But when you become a Christian, you realize, I am working and making money so that I can give more and more of it away, for heaven's sakes. So if you're 50 years old and you think you've made all that you need, congratulations. Now you're ready to be a real giver. And so you get more aggressive about the money you're making. And I have guys who get bored with making money because they have all they need. Why are you bored? Because you never realized the reason you were making all that money in the first place. You thought it was for a real big house and all the vacations you could enjoy all over the world. The reason for all that money is to give it to people who don't have. They don't have the gospel and they don't have a roof over their heads and they don't have potable water. There are a billion people in this world that don't have drinkable water. So come on, make some more money and let's get really good at giving it away. So your percentages are going to go way up on the percentage that you're giving away, you'll leave a tithe in the rearview mirror a long time ago. You're way beyond that. That's your aspiration. Get downright athletic about it in terms of the quantity of your giving. And, you know, if you're a goal-oriented person, then establish goals for yourself. Let's move that percentage on up every year. So you're giving 20% away? Great, let's move toward 25 
And if, you, if you've done this, you know how hard that is. Every percentage comes at great cost to you. I'm talking about percentages, not dollars. And you're moving those percentages up every year. You're working on that. That's what it means to excel in the quantity of your giving. What about the quality of your giving? You want to be a qualitative giver. That means you want to know who's running these ministries. Just because you know them well doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing a really good job. So you have to have ways of finding out what's the mission of that organization. Are they accomplishing their mission? Do they have people on the board who are non-family members who are credible people? Uh, Do they share the gospel as well as uh, serve them materially? Uh, All these questions you've got so that you can give qualitatively. So Paul says, excel in giving. That's for everybody in the church, not just the wealthy. Everybody. Get good at giving. Thirdly, we enjoy our giving. We've talked about this, but I've mentioned here Exodus. Notice that text I've got there, Exodus 34. That should be Exodus 35. And the first verse should be 5, not 4. So it's Exodus 35, 5, and then those other verses. And here's what's being said there when they're building the tabernacle. Moses says, everyone whose heart stirred him, brought gifts. All who were of a willing heart, etc., etc., etc. Over and over again, willing heart, willing heart, willing heart. It's throughout the Old Testament. That's not a New Testament concept. That's an Old Testament concept. With a willing heart, we give. We're not going to build the kingdom of God with gifts that are given begrudgingly. Don't give them. Moses is saying, only give the gifts from a willing heart. Now, I have a friend who's now deceased, Dr. Marion Barnes, who was the former president of Covenant College. And he asked the question one time, should we receive tainted money? He said, the problem with tainted money is there taint enough of it. (laughs) Now, I understand that from a parachurch organization and a church organization perspective. But when we're teaching the givers, we say that would be tainted money and your church and your parachurch organization will receive your tainted money given begrudgingly. But for your sake, for the Lord's sake, don't give begrudgingly. Enjoy your giving. There's a way to do that. Uh, Number four, we inspire others to give. So Paul says, sell in in this act of giving, in this grace of giving. And when you do, you'll find that it's contagious. Others will pick it up from you. So that, for example, when you find something in in our city that needs to be done and you're giving yourself to it, recruit the guy on your right and your left to give to it too. (laughs) Come on. Let's all inspire each other to be generous givers. Keep reminding each other of the huge needs that are all around us. And those of us who lived in in walled-in little cities, we call them neighborhoods, Uh, you know, walled-in places where everything's secure and we get in our nice secure car and go to our nice secure church and then back to our nice secure job and our nice secure neighborhood. We need to get out. And so uh, help your neighbor get out at least mentally and understand the great needs that are around us. Now, Paul uh, C. thirdly says that we demonstrate our love by our giving. In verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And James says it, doesn't he? That if there's a poor man there and you just say, hope you're doing well, but you don't feed the man, what good is your faith? Faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. It's a spurious faith. It's a specious faith. It's a a non-faith. It doesn't save. A saving faith is a working faith. 
And that means that we give. That's what faith does. So we demonstrate our love and our faith by our giving. And our lack of generosity always stems from our lack of trust in God's provision for us. Now, D, verse 9, we imitate and demonstrate Jesus. Brothers, here's, here's the heart of everything. He says, you've been given the gift of the grace of generosity so that you will be gracious to others. But the reason is, there's one who's been gracious to you. This is a key text that is worth memorizing. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. There you have it. It's substitutionary living. I take on the poverty of my neighbor to make him rich. I become poor so that he will be rich. That's what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary's cross. The king of the universe put his naked body on a tree so that you would be clothed and that you would be happy forever and ever. He laid down his life for you. That's what generosity is. It's taking up the cross. It's imitating Jesus Christ. It's saying, Jesus, I love you so much. I want to be like you. And that's what he's like. So generosity is being in Christ and allowing Christ in us to express His love through us. That's what His love does. It divests itself for the welfare of neighbor. So all of Christian generosity is rooted in the generosity of God, in the giving of His own Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, that because of that, we always follow our intentions with real action. And John says it in 1 John chapter 3, that we don't just love in word, in speech, but we love by deeds. We love with what we do. We love with our hands and our feet. We love with our money. We love with our sacrifices. So we make our plan, but then we execute our plan. And he's saying this is what Christians do. This is what Jesus did. He had a plan from all eternity. That crucifixion was planned from eternity, carefully. Uh, very meticulously planned. You can see it in the prophecies and the way Jesus orchestrates everything, even on Palm Sunday. Everything's orchestrated. It's planned. And then He executes it. You say, well, easy for Him. He's the Son of God. Have you gone to the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night and heard Jesus pray? Father, if it's possible, if there's any way possible for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. Nonetheless, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Jesus paid a price to execute the plan. So Paul is saying, Christian people, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, make your plan, execute it, and do it with joy, because we're told in Hebrews, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So even when He was on the cross, suffering in great agony, He still had joy set before Him. He knew where He was going, and he knew that he was satisfying the Father's will. So that's the same with our giving. We may suffer as a result of our giving, but there's a joy set before us because we know where we're going and we know that we're pleasing our Father in it. Now, notice uh, uh, in uh, F, verses 12 through 15, we give proportionately. And here he says, uh, I, don't, I do not mean that others should be easy and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, or the word there for fairness is equity. As a matter of equity, your abundance 
at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness or equity. And Paul is basically saying here that we give proportionally. That is, the wealthy will give more and the poor will give less. Now, I've put some verses here. Deuteronomy 14, 16, Numbers 18. You know what those are. That's about the tithe. And if you're members of Second Presbyterian, you heard a sermon on tithing last Sunday. And there it is. That's the key to proportionate giving. It's in the Old Testament. 10%. So my 10% is less than your 10%. But we both gave 10%. That's proportionate giving. And Paul is simply affirming that. It's the same principle right out of the tithing principle. In fact, all of Paul's principles come out of the principle of tithing. It's generous. It's joyful. It's sacrificial. It's proportionate. Everything that he says is taught in the Old Testament. So the same spirit of giving in the Old Testament is carried forward in the New. And what I've told people who say, you know, the tithe really isn't in the, uh, in the New Testament. I say, well, first of all, it is. It's in Matthew 23, 23. Jesus teaches it. Well, you say, well, that was Jesus. That was before the crucifixion and resurrection. Okay, so let's, let's go to uh, the, the New Testament. If you'll listen to this sermon, you'll see all the implicit arguments. Implicit, not explicit. Implicit arguments that you'll find in the New Testament uh, epistles. Uh, and the uh, book of Hebrews about this issue. But my argument that I made with our folks on Sunday was, look, you, you should be very careful about trying to argue that the tithe is not in the New Testament. Here's why. If they tithed in the Old Testament, before they knew who Jesus was, didn't know that He was dying on the cross for them, didn't know about the resurrection of Jesus that would bring us the resurrection as well, and they gave 10%, how much do you think you should give? If there's no tithe in the New Testament, I think maybe the number's right around 99% or something like that. So you should be grateful that there are some preachers who are teaching a tithe in the New Testament. You're getting off the hook. So if you say there's no tithe in the New Testament, I say, well, what is there? There's Jesus Christ dying for me, and I'm supposed to respond appropriately. So what's the appropriate response to that? Uh, I don't think, I think we'd all be eating hamburger helper. I think the tithe is given us so that we can calm down. And the Lord is saying, look, I know you owe me everything. Just give 10%, and that's a reminder for you, and it's a symbol for me that you belong to me. And let's just make it that little low amount of 10% instead of 90 or 95 or 99 or whatever you'd come up with. And it settles the believer's conscience. So believe me, if you're giving a tithe, you have, you have nothing to fear about being chintzy with the Lord. All of our arguments about going beyond the tithe are simply just go beyond what's simply required of you so that you have more joy and you're more useful in this life. But you'll find that proportionate giving is taught in old and new alike. So those of us who have the ability to make money, who have more assets, we give them away uh, at a greater percentage. Now, Roman numeral 2, look at verses 16 through 24. We have a few minutes and we'll notice not only is our generosity vigorously cultivated, but it's carefully managed. So our money needs to be managed well when we keep it, and it needs to be managed well when we give it away. It needs to be managed well all the time. First of all, we must be inspired by godly leaders. So Titus accepted our appeal, and he himself is very earnest in going to you of his own accord. So Titus will come and set an example. And I have to say throughout my life, I have been tremendously helped by very generous people. You know, I can think back to Little League and these guys who would take you know, two, three afternoons a week in the summer 
to coach little, uh, you know, numbskulls like me in Little League, I just, I look back and I think, that's unbelievable. The time those guys took out, you know, and we, and we got the, you know, post-tournament play and they were traveling all over the place with us. Saying, Gosh, I look back on that and go, how did those guys do that? You know, they had their own families and yet they were committed to us and developing us as young boys. I think about the Boy Scouts and the Scoutmasters that I had and the Assistant Scoutmasters. They were unbelievable people. And uh, how, how would any of us have had the experience we did in Boy Scouts without people giving to us like that? I think about my Sunday schools and all the women and men who taught me from the earliest ages uh, all the way through high school. I'm thinking about these people who put up with me in Sunday school. They weren't getting paid a dime and they were giving of their own time. I think about people when I was in seminary who were sending me money so that I would survive. And yes, uh, you know, I walked a lot of places and ate a hamburger helper, but I was able to finish seminary because people were helping us financially to get through. I just look back at that and go, those people really were sacrificing. Some people gave us significant amounts of money to keep our family afloat. It was unbelievable. And on and on it goes into this present time. I think about all the people who have been so generous and kind to me. I think about other examples uh, people like, I've told you about my friend Hugh O. McClellan, who's the chairman of the McClellan Foundation in Chattanooga, a very large Christian charitable organization. And Hugh O., you know, is a fairly wealthy person, and uh, he teaches on stewardship, and I've heard him talk about his own example because he's been asked about it. And he gives 70% of his income away every year, and he, he divests himself of 1% of his assets every year. So his assets are actually coming down. He's not just giving the interest off the assets. He's giving the interest off the assets plus 1% of the principal every year. And he's been doing this for years and years. So, I mean, he's, you know, almost 70 years old now. So he's been giving away huge chunks of his own money strategically, athletically, vigorously. I look at people like that and say, Lord, I want to be like that. Help me. I don't have the money he does, but I can have the heart he does. So... Paul is saying we must be inspired by godly leaders. We want to be those godly leaders. Secondly, we must be properly taught. And he sends Titus and another preacher or two to teach them. That's what we need to do is teach. In your teaching, be sure you're teaching on stewardship. With kids, if you teach kids or youth, teach stewardship. If you rake the leaves and you get $4 for it, you know, what is that? To Figure it out. Whatever 10%, 40 cents. Uh, you know, goes to the, into the storehouse the next Sunday. Teach them uh, from the earliest days. Thirdly, C, our gifts must be fully accounted for. And I've told you how grateful I am here at Second for people through the years who have carefully accounted for every penny. And this is important. You see it in the life of Moses, the life of David, the life of Hezekiah, the li- life of Josiah, Nehemiah, the Apostle Paul, always carefully accounting for God's tithes and offerings that are given. Be sure that if you're receiving charitable gifts in an organization, that money is carefully accounted for and reported to your board and to your constituency faithfully. Our gifts must be fully accounted for because it's the Lord's money. Then lastly, our generosity must inspire others. He says, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Give proof before the churches. And notice what he says about the churches. Do you see this in verse 23? Did you notice it? They are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. The church is the glory of Christ. Give proof to these churches who are the glory of Christ. That give proof of what? That you belong to the Lord. So let me tell you something. 
Just as I will search for churches that can teach us something, let me tell you what I do 98% of the time. When I go to other churches, I tell them, let me tell you what Second Presbyterian people do. Let me tell you about what independent Presbyterian people do. Let me tell you what Christ Methodist is doing. Let me tell you what First Evan is doing. And I brag on all these churches that I know, where I know about their missions programs. So you give me the privilege of doing that. You're setting the example that I take all around the world, literally, as I tell them what's going on here in Memphis and what you're doing. And I say to you, continue to prove yourselves before the churches the glory of Christ, that you belong to Him. Continue to set an example for them. And you say, well, what about these people? Did they, did they finally repent? Did they collect the gift? Lastly, turn to page 2183, Romans 15. Look at some verses with me and we'll close. Romans 15, verse 25 says, At present, however, Paul says to the Romans, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So this, this is, he's writing this from Corinth. So now he's gone to Corinth and he's writing the Romans. And he's saying, I'm going to come see you after I take this aid to Jerusalem. Okay, so we're on topic. What does he say here? For Macedonia and Achaia, that would be Corinth, had been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. What is Paul saying? You Romans, get your gift ready, because I want to tell you something. The Achaeans have given. (laughs) Here he goes again. So he uses the Macedonians to convince the the Achaeans. And then he uses the Achaeans to convince the Romans. How lovely. And that's the way it works. They did give. They did take the teaching. They were vigorously excelling in their giving. And Paul was able to use them as example to the other churches in the Lord Jesus Christ. You be sure that you've been convinced and that you're giving and that your giving is now a boast to the glory of Christ all around the world so that others will follow your example. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of giving and thank you most of all for the most extraordinary gift ever given us, the gift of Jesus Christ, which we remember and celebrate and for which we thank you even this week. So Lord, take our lives and may our lives be an offering to you as we give ourselves for the purpose of reaching the lost and advancing the cause of the poor here and around the world. We make our prayer in that most precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.